find Hebrews chapter 4 as we return to our series on the book of Hebrews. Uh, Christ is better. And uh, we're going to be looking at just two verses in depth uh, today, verses 12 and 13. But I do want us to back up to verse 1 again and pick up reading so we'll get these verses uh, in their proper context, and I'll have more to say about that a little later uh, also. But I want to talk to you this morning, again, subject matter, the living and abiding Word of God. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. The writer says, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands... Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same, sword, uh, same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Father, again, we ask you that through the power of your spirit, you would open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear. God, thank you for the rest that you offer through your Son, Jesus Christ. Rest for the weary now, as Jesus said in Matthew 11, and then a greater rest one day in your presence in heaven as we enjoy the consummation of our salvation. Lord, until then... Give us ears to hear. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I want to read a testimony to you. It's very fitting that John Gurley shared his testimony. 
Uh, Dr. Kent Hughes, writing on this passage, uh, gives the following testimony. And I just want you to listen to his words carefully. He said, I was 12 years old when I came under the knife of God's word. The cuts went deep, deeper than blood, as they cut my soul in gracious surgery. I was cut with the clear understanding that though I was an outward son of the church, I was not a son of God. This left me aware that I was a sinner and outside the spiritual mystery that others in the church shared. The cut hurt and I wanted healing. The other cut that the knife brought was the conviction that Jesus Christ was God and that he had died on the cross for my sins. This was not a totally new conviction and it throbbed with an almost sweet unrequited pain. God's word had surgically prepared my soul for an ultimate healing operation. I remember everything about the night it happened. My pastor directed me to read John 1.12 from my tiny India paper King James Version. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Oh, how my heart ached. For that is what I wanted more than anything else. Then he pointed me to Romans 10, 9 and 10. And I read aloud that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And as I read, the lights came on. It was as if the marrow of those verses were sucked off the page and into my soul. I did believe. How relieved I was as I wept. I can still see my tears through blurred eyes on the dusty concrete floor and confess my sins and received Christ as my Savior. Before I left, my pastor had me turn to another verse, Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. That night, by flashlight in my sleeping bag, I read those verses over and over with a welling joy. And before I went to sleep, I took a borrowed soft red pencil and underlined them. 37 years have passed and occasionally I take out the little worn Bible and read those precious words again. Thus began my experience with the penetrating power of God's word. It has cut me untold number numbers of times since, but each pain responded to has brought a fresh, satisfying healing. All scripture is, as Paul said, theopneustos, God breathed. It is the very breath of divine reality. There's nothing like it. Truly, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit. Amen. 
The living and abiding word of God. Folks, I remember back in the Old Testament as Joshua had taken over from Moses with the assignment of leading the people uh, into the promised land. And Joshua, of course, I'm sure he was very concerned about trying to walk in Moses' shoes. And God said to Joshua in Joshua 1.8, he says, He says, uh, Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it both day and night so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Folks, believers have always been instructed by the Lord as to the importance of of God's word in their lives. You know, this week, or I should say, I guess the beginning of next week, we're coming up on the 501st anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. In a sermon dated from March the 10th, 1522, listen to what Martin Luther said. He said, and I quote, I did nothing. The Word did it all. Now listen to the fuller quote out of that sermon. He said, in short, I will preach it, teach it, write it, but I will constrain no one by force, for faith must come freely without compulsion. Take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, remember he was a German... While I, while I uh, slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the, wor- the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Had I desired to foment trouble, I could have brought great bloodshed upon Germany. Indeed, I could have started such a game that even the emperor would not have been safe. But what would it have been? Mere fool's play. I did nothing. I let the word do its work. Amen? And the Word of God did indeed do its work. And even down to this very day, we still enjoy the benefits of what happened during the Protestant Reformation. You know, theologians speak of both the sufficiency of the Word of God and the perspicuity of the Word of God. The sufficiency of the Word of God. Now, the Word of God does not tell us everything about everything. It doesn't tell us everything about everything. That's not what the doctrine of the sufficiency of the Word of God even means. 
But what it does mean is that the Word of God tells us all that we need to know about salvation and sanctification. Coming to faith in Jesus Christ, growing in our faith in Jesus Christ until one day we see Him face to face. That's the sufficiency of the Word of God. And then the perspicuity, uh, really which even refers to general revelation, the testimony of God in, in, in the creation itself. The heavens are declaring uh, the, the power of God and the reality of God's presence and the glory of God. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, it is clearly seen. God's power is clearly seen in creation, in his written word, in his living word. Perspicuity, clarity. So sufficiency and, and, and clarity. Of the Word of God. Also, the Bible speaks about its inspiration. And the classic passage on that is 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, correction, for teaching and training in righteousness, so that the man or the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture, not just some. But all scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired. And folks, this is why when we meet for church, we open the Bible. Evangelical Christians believe that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. And by the way, that's why in a Baptist church, the pulpit is at the center of the platform. Why? Because we believe in the centrality of the Word of God in worship. People today wish that God would speak to them the way He did in the Old Testament. Oh, if God would only speak to me the way He did to Moses at the burning bush. If only God would speak to us that way today. Well, actually, the Bible points out that what we have today is a more sure and certain word. We have more of God's revelation than they had back then. Plus, we have a more certain word because it is inscripturated. Now, folks, I hope you can grasp what I'm trying to communicate to you today. And again, what I'm trying to say is when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Everything about our Christian life is to be grounded in the Word. Even prayer is to be grounded in the Word because it is the Word of God that tells us who we pray to, what He is like, And how he has dealt with his people. And so even our prayer life is to be governed and guided by the word of God. Now what we will see today is that believers need to continue to grow in their understanding of the Bible. Because God uses the Bible to encourage, to correct, and to build up his children. 
I'm only going to give you two points today, and that's why you don't have your sermon notes page. But we're going to talk about the problem and the promise. First of all, the problem. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. He says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall short by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The problem. Now folks, how many times have you heard this passage right here? Lifted out of its context and preached or taught in isolation from what's going on around it. This passage, these verses that we've read, verses 12 and 13 are some of the key passages that you will be exposed to if you ever study more about the doctrine of the Bible. And yes, when we study it that way, when we study these verses in isolation, it's still beneficial because it tells us about the nature of Scripture. But I want to suggest to you that these verses are even more powerful when we understand them in their context. You see, the writer has just spoken about the rest that we have in Jesus Christ. It is a better rest than Joshua gave to the people of God when they entered the promised land. And as he points out in these earlier verses in chapter 4, many of the people who were with Joshua and Moses in the wilderness did not experience that rest. They did not enter into God's rest. And the reason was that while they were in the company of God's people, even in the company of Moses, yet they did not listen to God's word. They heard with their ears... But they didn't believe. As I pointed out last time we were together in this chapter, just because you sit in church and hear the Bible preached and taught does not mean in and of itself that you are saved. Hearing has got to be united with faith. And when the Bible talks about faith, it is not talking about just some kind of empty, empty belief system, but it's talking about a belief that alters your very life. And so they had come out of Egypt with Moses and they had wandered in the wilderness and they saw God provide everything for them that God provided and yet they did not enter into God's rest. Because of that, many of them fell by the sword. Dr. William Lane in his commentary on the book of Hebrews talks about the irony of these verses here. The irony in a tragic way. When God told them after they listened to the ten spies that they would not enter the promised land. You remember what happened? All of a sudden they got scared. 
When God said all of these that that are 20 years old and older and and who have listened to the 10 spies instead of the 2 spies, Joshua and Caleb, who said we can go into the land and take it because God's promised it to us, yet the people didn't believe. And and God said to them, all of these folks are not going to enter my rest. And then they got scared and they said, you know what, we're going to try to enter it now. They understood what God was saying to them, that they weren't going to enter because of unbelief. And they said, oh boy, we've we've messed up. We need to enter now. And so they tried to enter by force. And and God said to the leaders, said, tell the people, don't don't go. I'm not going to go in with you. Don't try it. Because if you go in, you are going to die by the sword. So here the writer of Hebrews, because he's been giving a lesson on Psalm 95 in these verses, talks about them falling in the wilderness by the sword. And so the sword can mean terrible things. The sword can mean tragic things. But on the positive side, the sword can be wonderful. The sword can be a weapon of defense. You can be saved by the sword. And so the sword can be positive or it can be negative. Here he compares the word of God to a sword. And of course he's speaking in a positive light about what the word of God does in a person's life. Even when the word of God cuts us. In conviction and correction, the end result is good because God uses it for good in our lives. But again, he points out the problem here in verse 11. They did not enter the promised land because they did not believe God's word. Now I want you to understand what he's saying. He's saying beware because the same thing can happen to you today. Don't be so arrogant and don't be so proud to think that the same thing cannot happen to you. If we do not believe God's word, we will not enter the rest that God gives us through His Son, Jesus Christ. If we want God's rest, we must believe God. We must come to Him by faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus. If we fail to do that, we will not enter into God's rest. I don't know if you saw this week... But Lifeway and Ligonier Ministries teamed up for a survey recently, kind of looking at the state of Christianity in America. It, I tell you what, folks, it, it is disturbing what Americans believe. It never ceases to amaze me how biblical theology is dead in the church today in many places. It's dead. 
Folks, it matters what you believe. What's the Bible say? As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. What you believe is going to impact your life, what you do. It matters what you believe and what you believe is it in accord with the Word of God. If it's not in accord with the Word of God, you need to change your thinking. But it it just amazes me how people say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And then they go on to, they, they state things that are totally contrary to what the Bible says. In this survey they pointed out how people say, oh yeah, there's, there's other ways to God and there's, there's other, other ways, other gods, this, that, and the other, other standards of truth. And, and people end up taking opposite positions on even social issues in their life of what the Bible says. God says this about marriage. Well, I don't like what God says about marriage. I, I think it ought to be this way. Or I don't like what God said, God's word might say about life, about sanctity of life, about abortion, about same-sex issues. or what. I don't, I don't like all that. And so I want to believe what I want to believe and yet at the same time say, I'm a Christian. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? You've got a problem at the core of your belief system, at the core of your faith. If you, if you believe things that are not in keeping with God's word. As I've told you before, you are not a Christian just because you say you're one. Jesus said, many people are going to come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord. And I'm going to end up saying to them, depart from me. I never knew you. You know, none of this should surprise us. Because all the way back in Genesis 3, what did Satan try to do? He tried to attack The trustworthiness of God's word. He's still doing the same thing today. What I want you to see is when we open our Bibles, God speaks. You want God God to speak to you? Open your Bible and start reading your Bible. If we want God's rest, he's saying we must, we must believe God's word. The problem was they did not, and the problem still is many do not do it today either. But then he moves on to talk about the promise. Look at the promise. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, notice what he's going to say here related to the promise. He's first of all going to point out that that God's word is powerful. Listen to uh, 
Psalm 119, as I, as I read just a few verses to you out of Psalm 119. You ought to go back and read Psalm 119 when you have time. It, it's, it's the longest psalm. Uh, it's, it's pretty lengthy, so I won't try to read it all now. But, but he goes on and on and on in Psalm 119 talking about the virtues of the Word of God and the fact that God's Word is powerful. Uh, Listen to verse 9. He says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Verse 11. He says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 24. He says, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Do you need counsel in your life? The word of God is is God's counsel for you. Over in verse 66, he says, Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. You want judgment and knowledge in your life? It comes through the Word of God. Verse 105, he says, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Then in verse 130, he says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Over and over again, he's talking about the virtues of God's word. And what he's pointing out is the fact that God's word is powerful. I read the testimony recently, fairly recently, about a missionary who is... Serving in, in a foreign country and all he was doing was initially was just giving out Bibles. One guy ended up bringing the Bible back a couple days later and said, I, I want to give this book back to you. And the missionary said, why are you giving it back? He, this, this man said, I don't know what it is about this book, but every time I read it, it kicks me. But it kicks us in the right direction. Amen. I'm also reminded of a story that Dr. John MacArthur told one time. He said a Jewish man in the community came around to see him. The Jewish man had questions about Christianity. Rather than getting into some big debate with the guy right there on the spot, he said, would you take a New Testament and simply start reading the book of John? And as you read the gospel of John, say, God, if all of this is true, would you open my eyes to your truth. Well, uh, surprisingly, that Jewish man said, yeah, I'll take that challenge. Well, a period of time went by, and then the Jewish man came back around to see Dr. MacArthur. And Dr. MacArthur asked him, he said, so what happened? Do you have any questions? Have you learned anything? And the Jewish man said, oh, yes, I've learned a lot. Dr. MacArthur said, what is it? He said, Jesus is the Messiah. Dr. MacArthur said, huh? You know, I I believe that. You believe that now too? The Jewish man said, sure, Jesus is the Messiah. No question about it. Dr. MacArthur said, so are you ready to surrender your life to? Oh, I did that long ago while I was in the midst of studying through the Gospel of John. When God opened my eyes through his word that Jesus is indeed the long-awaited Messiah, he said, I've already surrendered my life to him and trusted him. I'm a believer now. What did that in in that man's life? 
The spirit of the living God took the word of God and brought conviction to his soul and drew him to faith in Jesus Christ. Only God's word can do that. No wonder Paul said in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's the power of God's word. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here in verse 12 when he says for the word of God is living and active it is it is powerful it's living and active specifically because it is God's inspired word and because it's inspired we believe that the Bible is inerrant in the original autographs Inerrant means without error. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original autographs does not affirm anything that is false or contrary to fact. The definition in its simplest understanding just means that the Bible always tells the truth. Furthermore, we could add that it always tells the truth concerning everything that it talks about. Now, some have tried to say that inerrancy only applies to matters of faith. But folks, inerrancy extends to and includes the Bible's words even about history and science. Now, everybody agrees the Bible is not simply a history textbook. It's not a scientific textbook that's not even the purpose of the word of God but nonetheless when the Bible makes historical statements or scientific statements inerrancy affirms that those statements can be trusted if the Bible couldn't be trusted addressing historical matters, for example, then how could we trust the Bible when it addresses salvation matters? Now, the Bible can be inerrant and still speak in ordinary terms, the way we speak. We call this phenomenological language. Phenomenological language. Meaning, for instance, the Bible can say something like, the sun rose. Technically, we know that the sun doesn't rise. It's it's the earth that's rotating. But how do we talk? We say the sun rises. The sun rose this morning at what? Ten minutes after seven, something like that probably. Are we giving misleading statements when we say something like that? No. That's ordinary language. That's how we talk. The Bible uses language that we identify with. And that does not threaten inerrancy at all. 
Now folks, Scripture cannot rightly be understood unless we take into consideration that it has dual-sided authorship. It's not enough to affirm that the Bible is a human witness to divine revelation because the Bible is also God's witness to himself. We must affirm that the Bible is entirely the Word of God and the words of the human authors. It is the word of God written in the words of men. And he says here it's active. It's living. It's active. Uh, Energes, the Greek word, it, it has energy. It's effective. This, this is the word used of, uh, of energy or of something being operative, something being effectual. For example, Paul could speak about a door being opened to him for the effective preaching of the gospel. Same word. Isaiah 55, though it's not the same word because Isaiah 55, of course, is, is in Hebrew, not Greek. But Isaiah 55 speaks of God's word not returning unto him void, but God's word accomplishes God's purposes. Same thought. That's what Hebrews chapter 4 is saying here. The word of God is living and active. It's powerful and it's operative. It's effectual. It accomplishes God's purposes. I want you to think about what God has done through his word. Some of the examples in the Bible of what God accomplished through the operation of his word. You don't have to go any further than Genesis chapter 1. What God say? Let there be light. And there was what? There was light. Mark chapter 2. Jesus said to that man they brought on the mat. He said, your sins are forgiven. And, and the Pharisees said, how can you forgive sins? And he said, i tell you what. So you'll know that I have the power to do that. He, he told the man, rise up, take up your mat and, and, and go. And, and the man did that. He was healed at the power of Jesus' words, which was supposed to prove to everybody there that what Jesus said about the man's sins being forgiven, Jesus' words were true concerning that too. They couldn't see that happen on the man's heart, but they could see the man rise up, take up his mat and go home. There was Jesus in the boat one day and the winds and the waves were tossing to and fro and the disciples were scared to death and they woke Jesus up and said, Lord, don't you care that we're about to perish? And the Bible says Jesus looked out at the waves and the wind and said, peace, be still. And the waves and the wind ceased. And they said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the waves listen to him? At the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus had been dead four days. Take the stone away. Lord, don't you know he stinketh by now? Take the stone away. Jesus waited four days so there would be nobody there who would say, well, maybe Lazarus was just was resuscitated. No, he was dead. He was stinking. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? The dead came forth. The power of God's word 
The Word of God is living and active. Not only is it powerful, but he points out here, it is penetrating. It is penetrating. He says it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of, of the heart. The Romans had swords. They had a long sword, but they also had a shorter sword, basically a, a, a dagger that they would use in, in close combat. And so to use this image of the Word of God being like a sword would have called up very Very powerful images in their minds. And he points out here it's a two-edged sword. Now, although the writer doesn't spell this out, I think perhaps what we're to see is is the double-sided nature to God's Word. It can cut to bring judgment or it can cut to heal. It's like a surgeon's knife. The surgeon may cut something bad out, but it is ultimately intended to do what? To bring healing. Well, he's pointing out here that God's word is even more effective than that. It's more effective than a physical knife or sword. Notice notice what he says here. He says it's piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What he means here is that it's not just sharp in the sense of of cutting your flesh. Rather, it gets inside of you and it brings conviction to your heart and soul. It rebukes you, it corrects you, it instructs you, it encourages you at the deepest level of a man's being. Nothing can do that the way God's Word can. Now, folks... This verse here has been used incorrectly, I believe. It's not even the point of this verse to try to say, do we hold to dichotomy or trichotomy? Is man made up of three elements, body, soul, and spirit, or two? Body and soul and spirit being synonymous. I think dichotomy is, is the proper position. But that's not even the point of this argument here. Don't try to use this voice that uh, this verse that way. He's using these couplets to be- say basically the same thing: soul, spirit, joints, marrow, thoughts, and intent. What he's getting at here is the word of God is able to get inside of you at the deepest part of. Of your inner nature. And God uses his word to do his work in your life. Even your thoughts and the motivations of your heart are not beyond God's reach. He says it discerns, it judges. The word is... Uh, Criticus, from which we get our word critic. The word of God is able to critique. It's able to judge even your deepest thoughts. And then in verse 13, he switches up from talking about God's word. He begins now talking about God. You see, God speaks in his word and he does his work through his powerful word. You can't separate God and his word. 
Now, we don't worship ink on pages between two leather covers, but yet you can't separate God from His Word. It is only from His Word that we know God. And so the writer very naturally and seamlessly is moving back and forth from talking about God's Word to talking about God. He points out something here that could be threatening to some people, but it ought to be a great source of comfort to believers everywhere. He says here in verse 13 that everything about our lives is naked and exposed before the eyes of God. How's that make you feel? Everything about your life. Everything. The secret motives of your heart, guess what? It's not a secret to God. Nothing is hidden. Your private thoughts are like an open book to the eyes of God. Now, he says here that you're naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The, the metaphor is, in some of your translations may talk about being laid bare. It's, it's a rich metaphor. It could refer to the twisting of the neck, taking by the throat, twisting the neck, as when they would pull the neck back to slit the throat of the sacrificial lamb. That's one of the ways this laid bare Metaphor was used. It was also used to describe a wrestling match. If one fighter was able to get another fighter in some type of chokehold, rendering him utterly helpless. It was also used to, of somebody being led to their execution. They wanted, they wanted the person to have to look in the eyes of the people that they had sinned against so they would put a sharp knife up underneath their their jawline here so that the person could not hang their head down in shame they would have to keep their head up as they were led to their execution all of those were images of how this phrase being laid bare was used back then And all of those images carry the same meaning. You're vulnerable. You're helpless. Everything's open. And he's saying that's how you and I are before God. We had better not turn away from God's promise of rest in Jesus Christ. If we turn back from him, there is no hope but only a fearful judgment. There's no pretending before God. That's what he's getting at here. There's no pretending. There's no fooling God. Your life is laid bare. 
You can fool some people. You can't fool God. God is omnipotent and omniscient. He knows all. He sees all. There's nothing fooling him. You can fool even your family members, but you cannot fool God. Your life is exposed and naked, laid bare before God. And so he's saying, you better press on with Jesus. Because he keeps his word. His word is living and active. He keeps his word and his word can cut either way in your life. It can be for the good or it can be for the bad. That's the context of these verses. In closing, I want us to think again about the text that I had Jason Anderson read earlier from Psalm 1. In Psalm 1, we see the good and the bad. The man of God or the woman of God listens to God's word and responds to God's word and it does wonderful things in their lives. God uses his word in the believer's life. The flip side of that coin as we see there in Psalm 1-2. Same thing he's pointing out here in, in Hebrews 4. To refuse his word and to turn to sin in the counsel of sinners results in nothing good but only the fearful judgment of the living God. You'll be like the chaff that the wind blows away. Folks, all of these verses speak directly to you and directly to me. Don't kid yourself. They speak directly to us today. There's no getting around it. Everything about your life is an open book. How does your life read to the eyes of God? Are you listening to God's word and responding in faith? If so, guess what? There's the the promise of God's rest for your soul, both now and for all of eternity. There's rest in Jesus Christ. But if you're not listening and you're just blowing it off, there's nothing but a fearful judgment awaiting you. You say, oh, I'll I'll get before God one day and I'll talk my way out of it. No, you won't. No, you won't. It's interesting to me as we're in this section of Hebrews that talks about the importance of listening to God's word and responding in obedience and faith. I think of what the risen Christ said in the book of Revelation to all seven of those churches. Remember that as he spoke to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. What was the phrase that he kept closing with over and over and over again? You remember that? He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. You see, God's speaking. But am I listening? It's also interesting the very first parable that Jesus told. 
was on the importance of listening. The parable of the soils. You think listening is important? Absolutely. If you... Give me just another minute, okay? If you do not find yourself regularly in God's Word, do not tell me that you are listening to God if you are not regularly opening your Bible and reading. The sovereign God of the universe is speaking to you through this book. And do not tell me Do not try to fool anybody that you want to hear God speak if you're not opening your Bible and reading. If I'm not opening my Bible and reading, I I want you to think about the sheer arrogance of that. The sovereign God of the universe has a message for me and I don't care. Apathy, yes, that's what it would be. But it would be even worse than that. It would be arrogance. And I want you to remember the context. God God was speaking, yet they were not listening. So the result was what? They would not enter into God's rest. You see the connection? If God is speaking through His Word and you're not listening and you don't care, what makes you think you're going to enter into God's rest? You might be asking, preacher, so you're saying if I don't read my Bible, I'm not going to heaven? That's not what I'm necessarily saying. What I am saying is if you don't read your Bible, if you don't care about listening to God... That's probably indicative that you don't have a converted heart. Because if you have a converted heart, you know what you're gonna, you know what you're gonna love? You're gonna love God's word. And loving God's word is evidence that you belong to Him. That's what He's saying. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're speaking. And I do pray that we will have ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church. Lord, your scripture is sufficient. It's clear. It's living. It's active. It's Powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you, Lord, for the way that your word does surgery on my heart. Lord, help us to be a people of the book. Because in the book, we learn about you and how to know you and how to walk in fellowship with you. Help us to be a people of the book. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.